This morning's Old Testament reading is from Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21. They can be found on uh, page 19 of your pew Bibles. Hagar and Ishmael sent away. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them off on her shoulders and sent, them, and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife from him for Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is Matthew 10, verses 24 through 31. Um, on page 975 in your pew Bibles. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called visible, how much more the members of this household? So do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. For what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. For what is in, what whispered in your ear, proclaimed from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall into the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head will, are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than the many sparrows. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you are wondering, yes, I did break my foot at Craig's Cruisers. <laughs> I 
And I see a few faces of people who brought us meals in the early days of that, so thank you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan Hum. Uh, my family has been worshiping here at Sherman Street for about a year, uh, and I have been clawing my way toward an MDiv for like seven. <laughs> um, so thank you for welcoming me to the pulpit um, this morning. Would you pray with me? God who sees us, would you in turn let us see you? Reveal yourself to us and make me a faithful messenger of your revelation. Illumine your word and soften our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. I come to you today with the story of Hagar and Ishmael in the desert. And here's how they got there. God makes a covenant with an aging, childless Abram, later called Abraham, promising to make his offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky and to give his descendants possession of the land. I'm sure this story is familiar to some of you, but the details matter, so I'm going to go through them. Some time passes, and Abraham's wife, Sarai, who's later called Sarah, who is far past typical childbearing age, takes matters into her own hands to help God fulfill God's promise and tells Abraham to sleep with Hagar, who is a young Egyptian woman enslaved by Sarah as her maidservant so that she might get pregnant with Abraham's heir. Hagar does get pregnant. And the text says that Hagar began to despise her mistress. I feel like uh, references to The Handmaid's Tale are a little overdone these days, but this is where that story came from. So if you've read that book or you've seen that show, the idea of a woman who is barren, who wants to become a mother, essentially enslaving someone to be raped by her husband so that she can have that child, that dystopian idea, it comes from this story. So the idea that Hagar despises Sarah, I think makes a lot more sense if you think about it in those terms. So in response to Hagar's disdain for her, Sarah blames Abraham for how miserable Hagar is making her. And he gives Sarah permission to mistreat Hagar. Why not? So pregnant Hagar flees to the desert because she can't endure the suffering any longer. While she's in the desert, an angel of the Lord comes to Hagar. He tells her to return to Abraham and Sarah's household, but promises to make her descendants so much that they are too numerous to count. Sounds familiar. The angel instructs her to name her baby Ishmael, which means God hears. And in turn, she names God El Roy. This is the first time this name for God is used in the Bible. And it means, you are the God who sees me. Hagar does return to Sarah. She gives birth to Ishmael, whom Sarah possibly raises as if Hagar were merely a surrogate and that this child belongs to her. 
But 13 or 14 years later, Sarah miraculously does conceive a son whom she names Isaac. And this is where our story picks up. So a big party is thrown for Isaac when he is weaned, and this is when the tensions really increase because infant mortality was really high back in those days. So for a child to be weaned meant they were kind of in the clear. Um, and Isaac was probably three, might have been a lot older actually. Um, so it's at this point that Abraham and Sarah kind of take a sigh of relief that Isaac can confidently supersede Ishmael as the rightful firstborn son. This means that up until this party, but certainly up until Isaac was born, Ishmael had been treated by the family as if he were the child of promise. He's even circumcised along with Abraham when God comes to Abraham and gives him that commandment. So are we really surprised then that Ishmael is mocking at this party? He's been fully replaced by a much younger brother. And he's a kid. That's just what they do. <laughs> Sarah tells Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that's, that woman's son will never share in an inheritance with my son, Isaac. But this distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, God tells Abraham, it's okay, they can go. Because God knows that they aren't safe to remain in that household. And God will take care of them. So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away, ostensibly to die in the desert. His son, who had been his only child for over a decade, sent away and abandoned. If we rewind a few years, when Ishmael is an older kid, a young, maybe a young adolescent, but Sarah hasn't conceived Isaac yet, angels in disguise visit Abraham and Sarah to tell them that Sarah personally will bear a child. This is that famous Sarah laughs story. And Abraham says to God during that encounter, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God says, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. But as for Isaac, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. Or, I'm sorry. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. So God doesn't revoke the initial promise of a child born in their marriage, even though Abraham and Sarah tried to creatively solve that problem through Hagar. But this isn't like um, Edwardian England or Game of Thrones. Like <laughs> culturally, um, Ishmael would have been accepted as a legitimate heir. 
it was not atypical for a man to have multiple wives or concubines and to bear children, and they were seen as legitimate as that head of the household wanted them to be. So, no, God didn't originally mean that Abraham should take so much creative license in procreating, but culturally, Ishmael would have been accepted. So God grafts Ishmael into the story right away and promises Abraham that Ishmael will be blessed, honoring the commitment that God made in the desert with Hagar when she had run away and was pregnant, that Ishmael would become a great nation. So to summarize, this story of Hagar and Ishmael left to die in the desert by their family begins with Sarah doubting that God will do what God has promised to do, which is to give her a child. Taking matters into her own hands, prescribing the rape of her slave, bemoaning that decision, and then blaming Abraham for going along with it, then abusing that pregnant slave because she feels bad, and then coming to resent the very child that Sarah forced Hagar to have, and finally casting them out to die when their presence threatened her newfound sense of power as the mother of the one true son. At first, God's promise of offspring doesn't meet Sarah and Abraham's definition of possible. They're very old, and a lot of time passes between God promising them an heir and when Sarah actually gets pregnant. So I get it. But they redefine it, they redefine that promise based on what they understand to be possible by forcing an heir through Hagar. And then when that heir doesn't meet their definition of legitimate anymore, they discard him. Even though God has already said, yes, Ishmael gets to be included in my story too. Ishmael gets to be part of this family. They interpret and then reinterpret the criteria for membership in God's family, depending on what secures their power. This was obviously not the last time that established members of God's people felt threatened by the outsider or by the unexpected when an insider thought that they got to define the terms of God's family but were challenged. Jonah, for example, is sent to the Ninevites to tell them to repent. And they do, and God forgives them, and Jonah is mad because they should be punished because they don't meet Jonah's standards for who gets to be forgiven. At the church in Galatia, much later, Paul confronts Cephas because Cephas was requiring Gentiles in their new church community to follow Jewish customs even though a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. There is this deeply human tendency for those with power to center themselves in God's story without considering that the locus of God's story may contain multitudes. The Christian church has a sordid history of, of power structures 
feeling threatened by divergent identities and either forcing assimilation or enacting eradication. Our institutions have executed heretics, have diminished women, have segregated people of color, have neglected people with disabilities, and have admonished sexual orientation and gender minorities. <laughs> we all find ourselves at different intersections of privilege and vulnerability in different degrees of power. And in some contexts, any one of us may be the one who is excluded. In other contexts, we may be the ones who have the power to exclude. Like Abraham and Sarah, we have a tendency to interpret God's will on our own terms and to gatekeep who gets to be accepted as flesh and blood and who is to be cut off. I think the real kicker, <laughs> the sort of like peculiar, particular sting, is that so many instances of harm and rejection within God's family, including with Sarah and Abraham, is that they start from a place of wanting to be obedient to God, of hearing God's word and thinking it permits or even requires something, an action, that can just miss the point completely, trying to do the right thing and getting it so, so wrong. So wrong, in fact, that sometimes what is meant to honor God completely dishonors God's image and those whom God made and whom God loves. El Roy is the God who sees us. God tells Abraham that he will care for his son Ishmael. Then God makes Hagar the rare recipient of yet another divine visitation. And God makes Hagar a parallel promise, just like the one God made with Abraham and Sarah. Verse 20 says, God was with the boy as he grew up. God was with the boy. The Old Testament goes where Isaac's descendants go. But that whole time, God was with Ishmael. It may be that Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everyone, everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. That's in one of our confessions. But that doesn't mean that every single action God has ever or will ever take with anyone, anywhere, is told in Scripture. The Bible records God's story as revealed to a particular people, in particular places, at particular times, and written by particular places. It has a point of view, and it must, every story must have a vantage point. But what we sometimes miss in hearing scripture is that God's action in history can, and I would argue should, be considered from many points of view. Instead of what I do, which is default to myself as the main character. So I would like to try a little exercise that's sort of derived from the practice of Lexio Divina. I'm going to read a portion of Psalm 86 
twice, followed by a short period of silent reflection. And I would like to invite us to hear it from a different vantage point each time. So I invite you to get comfortable but attentive in your body. To take a few deep centering breaths. And to close your eyes. The first reading for the purpose of hearing yourself as the speaker. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths and the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength on behalf of your servant. Save me, because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The second reading, for the purpose of hearing someone you have harmed as the speaker. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, 
abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. For you alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength on behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. You can open your eyes. The chapters following our story in Genesis confirm that God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah is manifest in Isaac. But if we shift our focus, we also see that the text attests that God is concerned for more than just Isaac. And that God's care for Hagar and Ishmael is consistent, not in conflict, with God's proclamation to Abraham in Genesis 12 that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God seems quite willing, if not determined, to locate salvific action in the margins, through the disenfranchised, in the unexpected. How could an enslaved Egyptian girl become the recipient of divine blessing and progenitor of a great nation? How is Moses supposed to bring the Israelites out of bondage? How can these dry bones live? How could this be, since Mary is a virgin? How dare you heal on the Sabbath? How come your teacher eats with tax collectors and sinners? How could anything good come out of Nazareth? In Christ, Gentiles, which includes descendants of Hagar, are grafted back into God's family. 
None of this is what you expected. What it means to be in and out is not what you thought. I will make Abraham and Sarah's descendants more numerous than the stars. But Galatians tells us, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So as Sophia read for us from Matthew 10 a few minutes ago, do not be afraid of the authorities, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Despite boundaries being drawn and redrawn over who gets to belong, who is allowed to lead, whose voice counts, who gets to stay, and who gets left for dead, the Holy Spirit continues to call all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of gifts into the wide open country of salvation. Misunderstanding God's will does not change God's will. Committees and councils are not the arbiters of God's reconciliation. Jesus is. And when you are told that you are a mistake, or when you're tempted to think that someone else is, I want you to ask, what is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's um, a Sandra McCracken song that I love about betrayal and grief called Fool's Gold. And in it, she sings, but if it's, okay, if it's not okay, then it is not the end. And this is not okay. So I know this is not the end. Some of us may feel like God's family is moving on to the promised land without us. But God remains. This is not the end. As we prepare to approach the Lord's table, I want to end with my favorite portion of the communion liturgy in our sister denomination, the Reformed Church in America. Of Jesus, the liturgy says, by his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new, an eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted of God 
and never be forsaken by him. We come to have communion with that same Christ who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.